Hey everybody, it's Mark. Welcome or welcome back to the New Spring Church podcast. Hey, at the end of this episode, please take a moment to subscribe to our YouTube channel and download our free New Spring app where you can access all of our recent message content. Actually, the app is the easiest way to share all this content with a friend, and it's the easiest way to keep up with everything going on around here at New Spring. But most importantly, I hope the following presentation inspires you to take your next step in your faith journey. Enjoy. So I want to start, I want to start the talk uh, this morning out by showing you a phrase, and I want you to think about what comes to mind when you hear this phrase, you read this phrase, and that is the phrase, I've turned over a new leaf. Now, what happens for you mentally when somebody says that to you? If you're like me, I immediately feel skepticism creeping up within my spirit. Like there's immediately a sense of, we'll see. We'll see, time, time will tell. Because how many of us have noticed that turning over a new leaf is very common? Sticking with the decision when you turn over a new leaf, very uncommon. When people make a change and it actually takes root and it becomes a permanent part of who they are, we sort of stand back and respect, respect, because that is a big deal. But it's not something that we just necessarily throw a party for when somebody makes the decision to change because we all sort of stand back and say, well, I've seen this go badly a lot. I've seen, I've seen it revert. Isn't it true? Haven't you noticed? Let's see if this is true for you. It seems like there's almost a magnetic pull that grabs us when we've made a change and drags us back to the previous version of ourself. And we're like, wait a minute, I was making a lot of progress. I was doing pretty good. And then the next thing you know, you wake up and you're right back where you started. It's so frustrating. And not only is it frustrating, I think it makes us skeptical about the idea of change in general. When I was asked to you know, do one of the messages in this talk, one of the first things that I thought is, you know, this is a tough topic because I think all of us, we have a certain skepticism just about people changing anyhow because people talk a lot about change, but people don't change a lot very often. I mean, it does happen, but talk is cheap when it comes to change. I'm dealing with that a little bit myself right now. I, I had a meeting with my doctor who, it was a little bit of a come to Jesus meeting because of my nutrition habits. Um, so some of you have been here, so I've been, I've been at New Spring for 11 years. Some of you have been here for all 11 years. You've known me from 29 to 40, and you've noticed that from 29 to 40, I've put on quite a bit of character and integrity right in this area. I've started wearing these pregnancy shirts to sort of hide as much as possible, and... Um, I now have what I suppose is referred to as a dad bod. <laughs> they make special shirts for, t-shirts for us with dad bods. My wife ordered me some of these. They're, they're, they're t-shirts that help accentuate features that I really don't have. I don't have muscles, but they're supposed to accentuate that and they're supposed to hide the features that we don't want people to see, right? Um, that seemed like a good solution for a little while. But my doctor said there was a maybe a little bit more permanent solution than ordering specialty t-shirts. He said, you know, you might want to change your diet up a little bit. And, and to give you an idea of how bad my diet was, and, and in both services now when I've talked about this, people have gasped. It really makes me feel good about myself. Um, <laughs> but I was, first of all, a chain soda drinker. 
Now, you know, we used to talk about chain smokers, which meant that they start smoking their next cigarette just as they're finishing smoking the previous cigarette. I was that way with soda. I would start drinking the next soda as I was finishing drinking the previous one. And I would drink so many in a day, and I, I, I don't want to necessarily give you the number, but when my doctor helped me calculate how many grams of sugar it was in a single day, it was over 400 grams, which is too much, <laughs> in case you're wondering. And it's not just the soda. I have a ferocious sweet tooth, right? Um, and especially in the morning when I wake up, that's, that's a tough time for me. Now, the snack cake companies, uh, <laughs> I don't know, there's some sort of temptation thing. Say, I, I don't want to say that Satan is involved in temptation in snack cake com com companies, who knows? But there's a, there's a certain kind of snack cake called a honey bun. Do you know what I'm talking about? Does that sound familiar to you? There's something sacred about honey buns. I'm pretty sure in heaven we'll be able to eat those with impunity, but that's a talk for another day. <laughs> I, I would wake up and I would need one of those, and I, I would feel the Holy Spirit drawing me towards the pantry where the honey buns were. <laughs> and originally it was just like one in the mornings, but as my spirituality grew, I started you know, eating more and more. By the time it was done, and I'm so embarrassed to admit this, but by the time it was done, toward the end of 2021, I was eating a box of honey buns in the morning for breakfast. I told you people would gasp. <laughs> um, and my doctor said that there, that might not be the healthiest plan. There might be healthier alternatives, you know? Um, so the beginning of the year, this had nothing to do with New Year's resolutions, just how the timing worked out. At the beginning of the year, I made a choice that I was going to make a change. And I quit drinking soda, um, and I quit doing sweets, and I started watching my diet. I've lost 11 pounds so far. Thank you very much. I appreciate that. Right? Um, it's been a good few weeks. Now, how many of us have had a lot of good few weeks? We've done that. There's been a lot of times where we, for three weeks or four weeks or six weeks or maybe even a couple months, we maintained the change we were looking for. Maybe it has to do with, with um, finances, trying to get your spending in line. You go to Financial Peace University, you really get straight on, this is how we're gonna do our finances. And as long as you were in those classes, you were doing really great, and then you got out of classes, you kind of forgot about it, and you kind of did other things, and before you knew it, you were back to where you were before, that magnetic pull that draws you back into where you were before. Or maybe it's something even more serious than that. It's something that you do that you know is offensive to God, and you keep telling yourself and promising yourself, I'm not gonna do that anymore. But, and, and maybe for five weeks, six weeks, a couple of months, you are able to not do that, but then you find yourself drawn back into it and you're right back where you were before. When I think about that roller coaster of trying really hard and failing, it reminds me that last year I was working on my dissertation. Now, if, if you are unfamiliar with the process of dissertation, writing a dissertation is like a year-long root canal. There's no way around it, it's gonna last a long time, and it's gonna hurt really bad. Uh, it hurts to read other people's dissertation. I told my wife, my graduation gift to her is you never have to read my dissertation. Um, one day I'm working on my dissertation, and I took time off of work, and I'm really just in the zone, focused, gotta get pages written. My final dissertation was over 200 pages, so you have to just turn those out, you gotta really write. I'm, I'm in the zone, I write 15 pages, I go to save my document in the, file menu, now don't get ahead of me yet. 
in the file menu, right next to the save button, there is a button that says revert to previous version. And I clicked on that button and I lost 15 pages. I went back to where it was before I started. That's what I'm talking about, that's what it feels like. I work hard, I work hard, I make changes, and I do all of this, like it's not easy to change. This has not been an easy few weeks for me. Like it's, it's hard, I miss those honey buns, you know I mean? You, you got, you, 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 it takes energy, it takes investment. And then one day you wake up and it's like somebody clicked the revert to previous version button. Here's the problem with that cycle, going back and forth is eventually, and remember that Satan is an accuser. Do you remember that? The scripture says that Satan is an accuser. And Satan wants you to get to accuse, Satan wants to get you in the mode of accusing yourself. Because if we can accuse ourselves, we will go to that shame place, to that dark place, and then we will never improve because we're gonna be so down on ourselves that we won't have energy or motivation to make any changes. And what Satan wants us to do is get in that that cycle so much that eventually we will step back and we will zoom out and we will look at our life and what is the message we tell ourselves? I'm never gonna change. It's always gonna be like this. I'm gonna try really hard and I'm gonna be back where I started. Might as well not even try. But if we could get off that roller coaster, imagine how powerful that would be. This is what this entire talk is about. How do we avoid reverting to the previous version? How do we bank on the progress that we're making and continue making even more progress? That's what this is about. And this talk is one where I, have, I do not have my finger pointed out at you. This is Jonathan's finger pointed in at himself. I need, to, I need to, to adopt this, make this part of my life right now, because if I don't, do you know how many times I've quit drinking soda? A lot. If I don't, this'll just be another one of those times. I need this in my groundwater, but I hope that it's helpful for you too. Here's the first thing. And by the way, there's four things that'll help you avoid reverting to the previous version. If you're a note taker, this would be a great day to take notes. You can take it on the app. If not, I think there's maybe pins in the seat in front of you. Ladies, you always have something rolling around in the bottom of the purse, pencil, mascara, something, right? You take that out and take notes. Um, so uh, here's the first thing. Point number one is this. You need to make the wrong thing hard to do and the right thing easy to do. You need to make the wrong thing hard to do and the right thing easy to do. It's one of the things that, one of the things that I think causes us trouble when we're trying to make a change is that we change our mind, but we don't change our environment. You hear me? We change our mind. Here's, the, here's, here's what I wanna change about myself but we leave the environment untouched as though the environment does not have an influence over us. It does have an influence over us. Hebrews 12 says this, Paul says, we're surrounded by such a huge crowd of witnesses, and this is Hebrews 11, the chapter before this is the hall of faith, all of these heroes of the faith that Paul's been talking about, now we make this transition. Because we're surrounded by such a huge crowd of witnesses to the life of faith, let us strip off every weight that slows us down. So here's an emphasis on the, the weights that hold us down. I want you to notice this, especially the sin that easily trips us up. Actually, a better translation, and many of you are holding a translation that says, and the sin that so easily trips us up. And let us run with endurance the race God has set before us. Okay, why the emphasis on that? There is a separation. That's why I said the word and is more appropriate. There's a separation here in the scripture between the weight 
that slows us down and the sin that trips us up. What does that mean? That means that it is feasible that there are things in our life that are weights that keep us from changing that are not necessarily sin. We know what sin is. Sin, sin is anything that goes against the perfect character of God and puts distance between us and a holy God, right? That is sin. But apparently, there are things in our life that can weight us down, make it harder for us to change, make it harder for us to get to our destination that are not necessarily sin. You say, Jonathan, what's the point you're making? I'm saying it is, it, it is one thing to say, I'm gonna examine my life and make sure that I'm not doing things that, that are putting against God's, that, you know, put, put me and God at a distance. It's one thing to say, I don't want sin in my life. We need to go even another step, one more step and say, not only do I not need sin in my life that's gonna trip me up as I'm making this change, I also don't need anything that's gonna slow me down. Any of you ever run with weights before? You ever run a marathon with weights? No. You know, we can train with weights, but you don't run a performance with weights because it would slow you down and make it, make it more difficult for you. We said the definition of sin is anything that puts distance between us and the character of a holy God. What is the definition of a weight? A weight is an influence that is incompatible with your goal. See, a lot of us, we need to scan our environment when we decide to make a change, we need to scan our environment and say, what are the influences in my environment that are incompatible with the goal, the change that I'm trying to make? Let me ask you a question. How long do you think I'm going to be on this diet kick if I stock my refrigerator with Coke and I stock my pantry with honey buns? It's not gonna happen. I'm gonna tell you right now, it's not gonna happen, right? Because those are influences that are incompatible with my goal and they will slow me down and they will keep me from running the race that I need to run. I, I think one of the things that we struggle to understand, we, you know, New Year's resolutions, like I said, it's almost a joke. It's almost cliche, the New Year's resolution. We, we kind of chuckle about it because we're like, oh, so common, nobody sticks with them. Everybody around the water cooler at work's taking bets on how long is it gonna take them to fall off whatever wagon they've decided to get on. And the, the struggle with it is, well, let me, let me say this. Do you ever wonder if we're making the resolutions, why do we not stick to them? I mean, this seems like I ask weird questions, but this is a weird question that's in my head. If we're gonna go to the trouble to make the resolution, why don't we stick to it? And I really did some soul searching about that this week, and here's what I think it is. Think about this, when we make a resolution, we do that in a moment of strength. Is that not true? I'm walking out of the doctor's office, I'm gonna do better. I'm gonna do better, that is a moment of strength. I'm a, you know, you have the little pamphlet, these are the things I can eat, these are the things I can't eat, you know? All right, I'm gonna do this, right? And there is, there is emotional strength, there is mental strength, there is resolve there. But how many of us have learned that you will experience life in life both moments of strength and moments of weakness. It is predictable. And this is what I'm not sure we completely anticipate. It is predictable that we will hit moments of weakness. We should know it's coming. We should, we should recognize it's coming. The moments of weakness are coming. And I think we either, this is human nature, we either tend to under, underestimate the moments of predictable weakness that are coming, or, and this is, I think, just as common, we overestimate our willpower. 
I think we, we, we have a perception that our character is so strong that it will overcome our circumstances. King David, biggest mistake of his life was that when all the rest of the men went out to go to war, David stayed around the palace and he went up on the roof and was looking around. David was the first guy in the, in the Bible to have a pornography problem in the sense that I think he had realized when he went up to his roof, he had a view that nobody else in the kingdom had. See, people would put their their baths on the top of the roofs of their house because it was the coolest place and people would bathe on the roof of the house and it was a it was a private place for them to bathe there was a little partial wall there so anywhere that you happen to be you would not be able to see your neighbor taking a bath but it did the palace was high enough that was the one place if you went out on the roof of the palace you would be able to see into the places where other people were, were bathing. And I, I gotta believe that this was not a one-time thing for David. I'll have to apologize to him when I get to heaven if it turns out that I'm wrong. But I think he understood that he had a view that nobody else had. And I think he thought that his character would override his circumstances. That he could, this is, this is the, the verbiage we use, I can handle it. I can handle it. But if you know the story of David, you know how quick things can get out of hand when we say I can handle it. The truth is your circumstances will override your character. That's why I'm putting so much emphasis on environment. If you put all your stock in your willpower, can I just tell you, you're gonna revert to the previous version. I can just tell you right now, it's gonna happen. I've seen this, people have told me, I'm gonna get my spending under control. I'm gonna get my debt paid off, I'm gonna get my spending under control, uh, and yet, they still keep all their credit cards. Well, the credit cards are an influence that's incompatible with their goal, yeah? I remember when I was 14 or 15, my parents sat me and Jared down. Stephen was too young at that point to know what we were talking about, but they sat me and Jared down and my, my mom and dad said, uh, we are going to, we've made a decision, we're gonna focus on paying off debt. Now, the debt that my parents had, they hadn't got it because they had been frivolously spending. Most of it was medical debt um, that had accumulated over time. But my parents said, we don't wanna be in debt anymore. We are going to focus all of our expendable income on paying off this debt. What that means is that we are going to live a slightly different lifestyle. Now the thing is, we, my parents had always been frugal, but this was at a whole other level. And I remember the first time that I went with my dad to a garage sale in Wichita, and we poked through clothes on racks and looked at different things. I thought it was actually kind of cool. Um, and, and actually my dad and I kind of got into that groove. We sort of liked it. And before you knew it, we were going out every Thursday and checking out uh, garage sales, right? And it became a thing. I still treasure the time that we spent once a week going out there and walking around talking, going to garage sales together. It was a lot of fun. But the thing about it is, and this is something my dad taught me in the process of that, your impulses are not going away. If you make a change, your impulses are not going away, so you better put your impulse in an appropriate environment that is gonna work with the goal that you have. So you have an impulse to, to buy and spend and have things um, that, you know, to fulfill your needs, so we put those in an appropriate environment where you could buy that pair of slacks for two bucks. And some of us need to be sure that we're putting our impulses in the appropriate environments. And that may mean that we change the environments that we've been in before. I had a 
uh, guy I went to college with years ago, but I still follow him on Facebook. Back in 2018 or so, he did this big post on Facebook about how uh, I think he was either reading a blog or listening to a podcast, and they were talking about reading a new business bestseller every week, and how, or uh, was it every, yeah, every week, and that was going to like just light his entrepreneurial fire, and he, that was gonna help him be a better businessman and all those sorts of things, and we were all chiming in on the comment thread, hey, way to go, let me know how that works. I like reading books too, let me know if you read a really good one, this is a great conversation going on, and then within a week, he posts another picture on Facebook of a brand new video game console with all these video games spread out on top of it. Now, I didn't I didn't write him this week to ask him how that went, but my hunch is his plan to read a new business book every week didn't last very long. Because that video game console is what? It's an influence that's incompatible with his goal. Let's go to a deeper place. I've had so many guys in my office who've said, I'm gonna quit looking at pornography. And yet, they're unwilling to change their technology profile. I'm sorry, that's not gonna happen. Right? I mean, seriously, I've had this conversation. They say to me, Jonathan, what do I need to do? I wanna stop, you know, I need to deal with this. I keep finding myself back in this pornography. What do I need to do? And I say, well, let's start by putting filters on your computer. Well, I don't think I need those. I mean, it might slow down my computer too. And you know, sometimes those things block sites that are perfectly okay. Well, duh. You know, that's why you give somebody the password and let them unlock those sites when they come up. You know, you need to let your, you need to let your spouse put a parental filter on your phone. My, we don't even have an issue with this in our home, but I, I gave my phone to my wife a long time ago and said, just so I don't stumble into something I'm not supposed to, put the parental locks on it and you keep the code. And to this day, I don't know what the code is. Yeah, sometimes it blocks sites that are fine. You know what I do? I hand it over to my wife and she punches in the code and guess what? We've survived somehow, we're still alive. but I get all kinds of pushback. No, I don't wanna do that. No, I don't think that that's necessary. And I'm here to tell you, the moment I hear that, there is just a groan in my spirit that goes, nothing's gonna change. I've had people tell me, I'm gonna be strategic about finding the right one for me. It's time for me to find the right one. Like, I, I know that God has that one for me. I'm gonna, I'm gonna be strategic about it, but then they still go to the same bar on Friday night, hang out with the same friends on Friday night that they've always hung out with, and do the same things they've always done on Friday nights. Can I just tell you, if you keep doing the same things you've always done, you're gonna keep getting the same results you've always gotten. It's not gonna change. Here's my question for you. And I want you to get gut level honest with yourself. This, you don't, this is not you telling me, this is you telling you. Have this conversation with yourself. Are you more likely to stumble into doing the right thing right now or are you more likely to stumble into doing the wrong thing? Because life has momentum and it will knock you off balance. My question is, when the momentum of life knocks you off balance, are you gonna fall into doing the right thing or are you gonna fall into doing the wrong thing? That has to do with how you've shaped your environment. And if you've shaped your environment in such a way that you're more likely to fall into doing the wrong thing, then I will give it to you that it is unlikely that you will make permanent change. You need to shape an environment that is such that you are far more likely to fall into doing the right thing. Okay, number two, check your motivation. Check the source of your motivation. 
As a psychologist, this is one of the areas that I, I study. I, I lead a research team, and there are several things that we study, and motivation is one of those. We know something about motivation. We know there's two kinds. I mean, we could divide it a lot more than that, but there's two overarching kinds of motivation. One kind is the motivation that is my own. I'm motivated to do this. This is my choice, my decision. I've determined this is what I want to do. Now, that does not necessarily mean that it's something that's gonna be pleasurable for me. I, I may be motivated to go get a tooth filled. I'm not gonna necessarily enjoy that, and yet it is my choice, my decision. I want to do that because I understand the importance of it, and I'm motivated to do it. That's one kind of motivation. The other kind of motivation are, these are the things I do because somebody else wants me to do it. I'm pressured to do it. And here's what we know. If you do something because somebody else wants you to do it, if you do something because you're pressured to do it, first of all, it's gonna be time limited. You're only gonna do it for a season. The second thing is it's gonna be lackluster. You're not gonna do it well, which probably means you're not gonna meet the expectations of whoever's pressuring you in the first place and you're never gonna feel good enough, but that's another talk for another day. And then third, it will be mentally exhausting. See, we only have so much, this is something we've learned in the past couple of decades. The part of our brain that is involved with, with regulating our impulses and fighting temptation, it has limited energy. And when we are doing something because somebody's pressuring us to do that, we are exhausting that energy to fight impulses and temptation. We're using up all of that energy to try to do something that we don't really wanna do, but somebody else wants us to do it versus if it is my choice, my decision, it tends to be permanent. It tends to be better than it needs to be. It's not lackluster, it tends to be, I tend to overperform, and then the third thing is it's not exhausting. So you can tell, I really need the changes that I make to be changes that I've made because I decide to make them. By the way, isn't it lovely to know that while it took us until the last few decades to learn this in psychology, that it was in the scripture all along. Thousands of years ago, it was in the scripture. We can see this in Matthew. And I, I gotta tell you ahead of time, I've preached this verse wrong before. This is in Matthew 6.20. It says, store your treasures in heaven where moths and rust cannot destroy and thieves do not break in and steal. And here God, Jesus is talking about investing in the kingdom and not investing here on earth. There's certainly a monetary uh, um, thing going on here, but it's even bigger than that. Verse 21, where your treasure is, there the desires of your heart will also be. Now, here's how I've always taught this, and it is mostly correct, that your heart will always follow your investment. Super, super important principle, because we as Americans tend to believe that our heart is in charge. We're very passive about our heart. People talk about falling in love, falling out of love. Things just happen. One thing led to another. We act as though we are not in charge of our heart. The scripture says you are in charge of your heart, and the way that you lead your heart is by making strategic investments. Where you invest your time, where you invest your resources, where your attention and your focus is, that's where your heart is going. And that is 99% right. What I have failed to do before is teach the caveat that goes with that. There's a caveat. It's in 2 Corinthians, here it is. You must each decide in your heart how much to give and don't do what? Don't give reluctantly or in response to pressure. The caveat is, if you invest, but you only invest because somebody else wants you to invest, your heart's not going there. It won't work that way. You've gotta invest because you've decided to invest. 
You've got to make, you've got to put that energy into change because you've decided to change. It's got to be your decision. By the way, there's some people in this room that need to learn a side lesson here, which is that I cannot push someone else into change. Not real change, not permanent change, not the kind of change that's gonna last. I cannot elbow somebody into change. I cannot shove them down the assembly line. I cannot lasso them into change and say, you, you've got to do this. You must, you must, you must, you must. Because in the end of the day, they might change for a season, but it's not gonna be real change. Real change has to be that person's decision. Okay, number three, be careful what you tell yourself. We all talk to ourselves. It's not a sign of senility. If it is, I'm in trouble. We all talk to ourselves. But it's important to be cautious about what we tell ourselves. I, I didn't go into this in the previous two services. Messages are so important. The Bible tells us what kind of message Jesus came with. The Bible says that Jesus came from the Father full of something, full of grace and truth, which, by the way, is a balance. There's a balance between grace and truth. When Jesus came, he, de he, he delivered a letter of truth in an envelope of grace. But see, a lot of us right now, man, I, I wish I knew how to say this in a way that would be impactful. A lot of us are regularly telling ourselves messages that are neither truthful or graceful. We are telling ourselves that number one, are self-demeaning, and secondly, are just flat out not true. Some examples, and these are probably too small to see on the screen, but some examples, I'll always be a compulsive gambler. I'll always be hooked on pornography. I'll never be more assertive. I'll never learn to tell the truth. I'll always overeat. I'll never be a romantic husband. I've said that before. I'll never get out of debt. I'll always spend my free time on frivolous things. I'll never read my Bible on a regular basis. How many of us know, don't raise your hand, but how many of us know that these are the kinds of things we tell ourselves? Because we get so frustrated with ourselves in the process of change, we begin to tell ourselves, this is never gonna happen for me. And we say that over and over again. The problem with that is that we believe what we tell ourselves. Some of you in this room, you struggle with anxiety perhaps. Or maybe you're going through a season where you're kind of down on yourself and you're upset with yourself and maybe you sit down with your boss or you sit down with your spouse or you're around friends and you tell them how unworthy you feel and how much of a, a mess up you feel, like you, you're not doing anything right, you're messing everything up and they say to you, those things are wrong, you, you're not messing up, you're doing a good job, and they, they try to refute that, and they even try to give you evidence. Look at this situation, look at how you did this right. But is it not true that in those moments we do not hear them because we believe what we're telling ourselves more than we believe what they're telling us? Now the messages that you tell yourself are very powerful, and they're so powerful that they impact how you behave because your behavior will follow your belief. So follow the chain. What I tell myself, I believe what I tell myself and then I behave based off of what I believe. Here's what I mean by that. If we had one of those big, overstuffed, lazy boy chairs up here, and I am a lazy boy, so it's like it has my name engraved on it. And sit in the chair and just sort of relax. If you were to come up to me and say, Jonathan, get up out of that chair. I'm not terribly motivated to do that. You'll just stay and sit here. 
But if you were to come to me and say, Jonathan, get up out of that chair. I'm getting ready to apply 30,000 volts of electricity to that. You'd see some fancy hopping up right out of that chair. I'd be getting right up real fast. That's what I mean by what we believe tells us how to behave. By the way, this is an interesting thing about the Bible. There is a lot in the Bible about our behavior, but try me and see if I'm not right about this, that the emphasis on belief is always elevated above the emphasis on behavior in the scripture. And that, by the way, is different than other religions in this world. The emphasis on belief, why? Because God created us and he knows that our behavior follows our belief. That our behavior wants to snap to the guides of what we believe. So why am I, why am I trying to make the point that this is important? Because if I believe what I tell myself and my behavior follows my belief, if I'm telling myself that I will never change, what is going to happen? I'm never going to change. If I struggle with alcoholism and I tell myself I'm never going to quit drinking, my behavior will follow that and I'm never going to quit drinking. If I tell myself I'm incapable of learning not to be deceptive, I'm gonna behave in line with what I'm telling myself and I'm gonna still be deceptive. I'm gonna be mad at myself, but I'm gonna still be the same guy I always was. Somebody in this room is saying, Jonathan, but I'm a realist. I love realists, they're fun people. I'm a realist and it's not that I'm, you know, it's not that I'm telling myself these messages for no reason. I'm telling myself messages in line with the evidence. The evidence proves that I am not gonna change because I look at the past and I've tried to change before and I haven't. And I, you know, and by the way, if you look at my family of origin, my grandpa was this way, my dad was this way, I'm this way, I'm not gonna be the cycle breaker. So I'm just looking at the evidence and, and being realistic. Can I show you this is, if there were no such thing as God, and if you were not a God follower, I would just go ahead and give you that. But the Bible says in Hebrews 11, faith shows the reality of what we hope for. It is the evidence of things that we cannot see. A lot of times these days, we refer to ourselves as people of faith. I'm a person of faith. It's kind of become a euphemism for a Christ follower because it's more popular to say I'm a person of faith. It's less and less popular to identify with Jesus. We can get away with saying I'm a person of faith. By the way, we shouldn't do that. None of us should be ashamed of the gospel of Christ. Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ because it's the power to save, right? So if, if Jesus can hang naked on a cross for hours to pay for the things that I've done wrong so that I can have a future in heaven, if I'm ashamed of using his name to say this is the person that I follow, then there's a relationship problem between me and him. That would be like being married to Wendy and only ever talking about my wife but never being willing to be specific with anybody about who my wife is and not wanting anybody to see my wife and trying to keep that reality out of view because I'm embarrassed of her. What kind of marriage would that be? Not a good one. But while we're talking about being a person of faith, it's one thing to be a Christ follower. Being a person of faith by the Hebrews definition says, I accept the fact that tomorrow's reality is not hostage to today's evidence. God is not under any obligation to produce a tomorrow that looks like today. That together with God, tomorrow can be different. That's why it's so important what I tell myself. I'll give you a couple examples. I mentioned King David before. King David went through a really rough time in his life, late in his life, he had a problem with his son Absalom. Now David, despite his many mistakes, the Bible says he was a man after God's own heart. Um, 
Absalom, on the other hand, was a jerk. He was a moron. And among the things that Absalom, Absalom did, he tried to take over the kingdom from his father. He was successful for a little bit. And, and he took over, and David had to leave the palace with his staff. And meanwhile, Absalom's doing all kinds of crazy, uh, stupid stuff. He sexually abused women that were part of David's household in public just to prove how disrespectful he was to his dad. It was, it was a terrible thing. Meanwhile, David is literally having to go off out of the palace and into God knows where to try to find a, a place where they can take shelter. Meanwhile, David is journaling, as he does so well, what his emotions are. If you ever want to look at a, an emotional journey of a God follower, Psalms is a great place to go. But we have this psalm that David writes in this process, and this is what he says, why am I discouraged? Why is my heart so sad? Now, I want you to look at what he tells himself. I will put my hope in God. I will praise him again, my Savior and my God. Now I am deeply discouraged. So he's being authentic about that. I'm feeling discouragement right now. But I will remember you even from distant Mount Hermon, the source of the Jordan. He's like, even out of my normal environment, in the middle of this discouragement, in the middle of evidence that says tomorrow is really going to be messed up, I'm still going to put my hope in God. Some of us need to tell God as we leave this building today, I'm in a place in my life that I never would have planned for myself. And if I were to project tomorrow based off today, it doesn't look very good, yet I will hope in God. And that needs to become the new tape that you play inside. I will hope in God, I will hope in God, because God is the person who secures my future. And if you can replace the old message with a new message, you'd be amazed at what your life will be like in the process of actually embracing the change that God has for you. And by the way, it did happen for King David. God brought him back. Now. What about in the book of Matthew? We have a story of a woman who had suffered with a feminine bleeding problem for 12 years. And the book of Luke will tell us that she spent a fortune with doctors trying to deal with this problem that she had. And she was worse off than when she started. 12 years. Some of you in this room have dealt with some sort of chronic illness for 12 years. That is a long time. And if anybody had an excuse to just stay home and say, nothing is ever going to get better for me, so I'm not even going to try anymore. I'm not going to go to anybody. I'm not, I'm not going to try any solutions. I'm just going to accept that this is my life, and I'm going to, this is just going to be me. I'm just going to stay home and not do anything. Instead, she had read the book of Malachi, and the book of Malachi said that the Savior, the Messiah, would come with healing in his wings, and the term wings there means the fringes of his garment, and she took God literally, which I think God kind of digs it when we take him literally, and she showed up where Jesus was teaching, and she reached out to his garment to try to, um, to, to, try to take hold of that promise, and the Bible says that she was healed in that moment, but before the healing, look at what she tells herself. She says, if I can just touch his robe, I will be healed. What is the core message there? If I can just get close enough to Jesus, this could change. There's some folks in this room, that needs to be your new story that you tell yourself. Instead of telling yourself you're a failure and you'll never change, you need to tell yourself, if I could just get close enough to Jesus, if I could really get close to Jesus, this could change for me. Luke tells the story that Jesus told the story of the prodigal son and Luke reports it. And we're gonna spend the entire Desperado series in the story of the prodigal son. But it's important to notice that even he has a moment of productive self-talk. He finally came to his senses. Remember we said it has to be your decision. The father in the story of the prodigal son can't decide to bring the son home. Only the son can decide to go home. 
Son comes to his senses. He said to himself, at home, even the hired servants have food enough to spare. And then he said, I will go home to my father. He could have said, I can't go home. I'm a failure. I've messed up. My dad will never accept me. My dad, doesn't, my, my dad will think I'm a terrible person. He will hate me. I, all, I'm, all I can do is stay here. I'm stuck. Instead, he said the most productive thing he could say to himself, which is, I know I can go home. Somebody in this room would say, you know what? I'm convinced that if God knew everything I've done in the past month, in the past six months, I would never be able to go home. Spoiler alert, he does know what you've done. And he has never changed his mind. By the way, he has never left where he is. He's still where he's always been, and he's waiting for you to come home. And he wants you to come home. What are you telling yourself about the change you need to make? What is the, the message you keep telling yourself? And you may need, when you leave here this afternoon, you may need to take out a piece of paper and write, down, write out what are the messages you've been telling yourself. And then you may need to draw a line and then start writing the messages that you know you need to tell yourself and make a conscious decision that this is gonna change for me. Number four, and this is the last one, don't let a setback shame you into stopping. And if you were to say, Jonathan, what is the number one key to going the distance? I mean, what is the one thing that will probably make or break the difference between actually getting there and not getting there? I think it's this one. Satan's greatest tool against us is shame. Think about what happened to Adam and Eve in the, in the garden the moment after they sinned. What does the Bible tell us they immediately felt? They immediately felt shame. So what happens in the process of making a change is we will have a, a, a micro failure, we will have a setback, we'll have a relapse, something like that, and immediately we will feel shame and we will put ourselves all the way back at the starting gate, or worse, we may revert even deeper into the behavior that we're trying to avoid. I want you to imagine for a minute that you get on an airplane. You, you get in an airplane, you put on your seatbelt, you get ready for takeoff, the pilot comes on over the radio as they do, and the pilot says, hey, I've checked out the weather, I've checked out the flight plan, Looks like smooth sailing today. We're gonna have a great flight. I think uh, it'll be enjoyable. So sit back, relax, it's gonna be, gonna be great. And then you get up in the air and you hit turbulence with a capital T. I'm not talking about just the regular flight turbulence. I'm talking about the turbulence where there's old ladies in the back of the plane crying and the people are crossing themselves and praying and, and the, the flight attendants are holding on to either side. Of the, I've come to the conclusion when the flight attendants hold on, that's when to start praying, you know? Um, <laughs> And it's really disturbing, but eventually you get through the turbulence, the plane starts to calm down, things start to ease up, and you hear the pilot come on over the radio, and the pilot says, folks, I'm so embarrassed. I told you it was gonna be a good flight, I told you it was gonna be a smooth flight, and then it turned out, you know, we hit that turbulence, it was so bad, I feel really bad about it, so we're turning back, we're going back to where we started. <laughs> I'd be upset. Because in my mind, the turbulence is part of the price you pay to get where you're going. But a lot of us, when we're making a change, we interpret turbulence as a sign to turn around. We hit that moment of micro failure, of relapse, whatever. And we say, all right, well, guess it's over. Guess we're done. I've mentioned smoking a couple times. I hope if you're a smoker that you don't think I'm picking on you. It's just, actually, there's a lot of research on quitting smoking. One thing that we know from the research is one of the make or break moments for a person who's quitting smoking is the moment where they relapse and have a cigarette in the process of quitting smoking. 
one of two things will happen. Either that person, after having that cigarette, will go, whoa, this is harder than I thought it was gonna be. And I need to pay attention to kind of what led me down that road and need to be even more careful about that because I'm quitting. That's the story, I'm still quitting, right? Versus, and by the way, that's very uncommon. The much more common thing is a person goes, oh, I ruined it. I ruined everything. I was quitting smoking, I had a cigarette, the whole thing is over now. And what we know from the research is they'll probably smoke a couple of cartons in the next week or two. You know what this is like? This is like when you're, when you're learning to walk, right? As parents, the, many of you in this room are parents, and you remember when, when your kid is learning to walk, you get down on one knee and your kid starts to walk towards you, right in the beginning of the process, what happens? They fall back on their rear end, right? So then what do you say? I knew you couldn't do it. <laughs> no. You say, come on, you were doing so good. Get back up, get back up. Come on, let's do this, come on. Right, and you give that encouragement. You were doing so good, hop back up. So many of us are convinced we have a heavenly father that when we're in the process of doing something difficult and taking our first steps and making a change and we fall back on our rear end, that we have somehow a heavenly father that says, I knew you couldn't do it. You laughed when I said that. Why did you laugh? Because even though, th and this is a Jesus principle. Jesus said, even you being evil, we have a sin nature. He said, even you love your kids enough that you wanna support them and you care enough about them. He says, imagine what a flawless father, our God in heaven is like. He's a far better parent than we are. No, God does not laugh at us when we fall. He says, hop back up, you were doing a good job. Come on, let's keep doing this. I, I put this on a slide because I didn't want to say this wrong. I want to make sure I got the phrasing just right on this. Far too many of us self-medicate our shame by giving ourselves permission to quit trying. Do you know how we're supposed to deal with our shame? It's in Romans. Let's check it out. Romans 8. So now there is no condemnation for those who belong to Christ Jesus. Now here's what that means. When my soul is oriented toward God, and I'm saying, God, you are right. Even when I am wrong, you are right. Even when other people are wrong, you are right. I'm orienting myself towards you. Now, I have a sin nature that's always gonna wanna pull me to the right or to the left, but ultimately, my mindset is set toward you, and I'm always gonna try to recalibrate and reorient myself towards you. Here's what God says. For that person, there is no condemnation. At least from God. But Satan will try to get you to self-condemn. He will try to get you to say, see, the fact that I made a mistake means that I'm not really a Christian. The fact that I made a mistake means that I'm never gonna change. The fact that I made a mistake means that I'm stuck with this. The fact that I made a mistake means this is my identity. And God is saying, I'm not condemning you. Why are you condemning yourself? Just get back up and let's do this. Let's do this. I'm in overtime, but I wanna share one last thing with you. One of my favorite scriptures in the Bible is Galatians 6, 9. It says this, let's not get tired of doing what is good. By the way, inherent in this is that doing good and making change is exhausting. Can I get a witness on that? It is exhausting, but, but Paul is telling us, let's not get tired. Let's be careful about that. At just the right time, we will reap a harvest of blessing if we don't give up. 
What's interesting about that verse, I, I stumbled across something in my office as I, was, as I was going through that verse for this week, and as I've been thinking about my own process of trying to get my diet under control, um, I ran, I, I used to be a runner, uh, it's been several years ago, once again, we covered that, right? I used to be a runner. Um, and I ran a 5K once with my daughter, and I hadn't ever run a 5K before. I'm a research person, so I gotta get online, how do you run a 5K, what are the secrets, how do you do it the best, you know? I'm, I'm obsessive like that. I get online and I read this, and this one guy says, you need to come up with messages to tell yourself when you wanna stop. And so I had these four messages and I left it somewhere in my office because I thought maybe someday this will be good in a message. Well, someday has arrived because <laughs> it actually matches this verse really well. The first message that I told myself as I was running that 5K is, I'm tired, but I'm not done. I'm tired, but I'm not done. What does the scripture say? Let us not get tired and well-doing. To realize that just because I feel fatigued doesn't mean it's time to quit. Actually, that feeling fatigued is a sign that I'm getting somewhere. Feeling fatigued means I'm actually making progress. Second thing is this. I am capable of crossing the finish line. I will get there. What does Galatians say? In due season, we will what? We will reap a harvest if we don't give up. That is God promising you, you are capable of getting there. You can. Quit telling yourself you can't. You can. And then the final thing, I've come too far to stop now. Far too many of us are ready to cash in the collateral of years of investment that we've made in trying to get to the place that we are just to start over again. And what God is saying is, you've put so much into this. Don't give up now. Take what you've put into it and really leverage it and go for it. I don't know who this was for. Today, I know it's for me. Can I end this by saying that your heavenly father is more supportive of you than any person on this planet? He knows your potential. See, that's something that I don't know. I don't know what Jonathan's potential is. I tend to underestimate it. I don't know what Jonathan's potential is, but God knows. God knows exactly how far I can go and exactly what I can accomplish. So can I encourage you as we leave today to rest in God and rest in the fact that he knows that you can do this. So I have to remind myself, you know, I'm tired, but I'm not done, right? I, I can reach the finish line, and I've come too far to stop now. I'm gonna have to keep pushing. Let me pray for you. Father, thank you so much for the love that you've shown us and for the fact that you have built into each of us the capability, the capacity to change. Father, thank you for the fact that we don't have to walk the road of change alone, by ourselves, Father, that we are never abandoned by you, that you walk alongside us every step of the way, that you encourage us to hop back up when we fail. Father, we rest in the fact that you will sustain us through this fatiguing process of making changes. Help us to glorify you in the changes that we choose to make, and we'll thank you in advance for all that you're going to do because all the credit and glory belongs to you. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Thanks so much for being here this week. Once again, thanks for listening. If you live in Wichita, the surrounding area, we'd love for you to engage with us in one of our weekend services. For directions, service times, and information about our incredible kids and student environments, visit us at newspring.org. One more time, newspring.org.